Hello, America. We are six days away from the fundamental transformation of America. Oh, who's excited about that? Uh, That happens if you believe the polls. We're not so sure. We talk about the polls. We talk about the latest on Joe Biden and his family. But knowing that it's about your family, really, we also tell you about the economy and the digital civil war. All of that and so much more on today's podcast. And the big show tonight to figure out the uh, first... 100 days of the Joe Biden administration. If it were to happen, what would it look like? You should be prepared for that as we approach the election. And Wilford calls in and uh, God is a little smoked at stew. Also, did you want me to finish the promotion for your special tonight? I, I don't know. I wasn't listening. I didn't think so. Tonight is Glenn's special. Watch it right after a brand new <laughs> Stu Does America. It's blazetv.com slash Glenn. Bloody blood. 30 bucks off if you use the promo code Glenn. This election really is about fundamental transformation of America. We're six days away from that possible outcome. If Joe Biden gets in, they are looking at an entirely different country than the one that you recognize. We'll tell you about that tonight, and we urge you to watch with a friend, maybe somebody who hasn't uh, made up their mind yet. We're going to show you in their own words what they're planning on doing in the first 100 days. And I'll I'll comment on some of this stuff and show you as we go on. But they want to throw the economy out and start something entirely new. So is that where we're at? Who do you trust to be able to bring jobs to you when donald trump took office in january of 17 the unemployment stood at 4.5 percent and remember obama and biden said that's the best it will ever get by q4 of 2019 it had fallen by 32 percent just under 3.5 this included all-time lows in black and hispanic unemployment Overall, the Trump's uh, Trump's uh, unemployment rate set 50 year lows. U.S. U.S. household income grew at an annualized rate of 2.1 from January 2017 to December 2019, 75 percent higher than the annualized uh, uh, growth rate under the eight years of the Obamas uh, and uh, their administration. That was a rate of 1.2. It was 20% faster than the rate of inflation of 1.7. Notably, this includes black household income growth rate of 3.1, nearly double the rate of inflation. And here's where it really matters. The wage growth for people just like you, non-executive workers, it grew at an anemic 0.8% during the entire eight years of the Obama administration. From Q1 2017 to December of 2019, your wages grew over 3% in 2018, largely because of the tax cuts. Said another way, the non-executive U.S. worker wages grew 187% faster under Donald Trump than under Barack Obama. So this is about your family. This is about your wallet. 
but it is also about who we are. Do we want somebody who is corrupt in office? They have made all kinds of charges on Donald Trump, but they have absolutely no evidence. But look at the overwhelming evidence on Joe Biden. Last night, one of Joe Biden's business partners was on Tucker Carlson, and he has said he's just had enough. We bring in Jason Buttrill, who is our uh, chief researcher uh, and national security advisor on the program. Welcome, Jason. How are you? Thank you, Glenn. Doing well. Uh, so tell me what what you pulled from this interview last night. I keep waiting to see this smoking gun that uh, I believe is out there that I think they can find, but it's direct money going straight towards uh, Joe Biden. Yeah, you're looking for a wire transfer, and I'm I'm not sure if you will find one because of the documentation that we found that uh, Hunter Biden was saying it's to be held for the big guy. But I think that it's – I really think that if – Tony Bobulinski last night looked extremely credible. I think that's one of the biggest things. Everything he was talking about, the locations he, he was describing in vivid detail, uh, meeting at places like the Peninsula Hotel, and and uh, that's when he talked to, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Jim Biden, where he said, mm-hmm. you know, plausible deniability. In fact, let me, is- play, let me play this. This is a cut. He had just said that Joe Biden, he could confirm, because he was part of this deal, he could confirm that Joe Biden is the big guy which meant 10 percent of all of the business dealings was going to joe biden from china here's how he was answered when he said how do you expect to get away with this listen bobolinsky on joe biden's plausible deniability i know joe decided not to run in 2016 but what if he ran in the future aren't they taking political risk or headline risk and i remember looking at Jim Biden and saying, how are you guys getting away with this? Like, aren't you concerned? And he sort of looked at me and he laughed a little bit and said, uh, plausible deniability. He said that out loud? Uh, Yes, he said it directly to me, one-on-one in a cabana at the Peninsula Hotel after about a, you know, hour and a half, two-hour meeting with me asking out of concern, how are you guys doing this? Aren't you concerned that you're going to put your brother's, you know, future presidential campaign at risk? Um, you know, the Chinese, the stuff that you guys have been doing already in 2015 and 2016 around the world. And uh, I just can almost picture his face where he sort of chuckles and says, you know, plausible deniability. So, Jason, first of all, explain who Bobolinsky is. So Bobolinsky was, uh, I, I, you, I guess you could call him a business partner, a partner with Hunter Biden and multiple other of the people that are all involved in this, the usual suspects, people like Devin Archer. But he was recruited directly, and he's even alleged that uh, Joe Biden was actually involved directly with him in a meeting to recruit him to be the CEO of one of these companies that embarks in these business ventures all over the world. Okay, so why, I, I, the one thing, to, Stu and I were talking earlier today, the one thing I don't understand is why is this guy coming out now? I mean, and he's saying, you know, I came from a, you know, a Navy family. So you were willing to be involved in this then, but now you're not? Yeah. Do you have any feeling on why he changed and why he's now standing up? 
I can only speculate, but you can tell that he was conflicted about it because he asked if they were worried politically. Why would you be worried politically unless you knew exactly who some of these people were that they were dealing with? And I think we'll talk about a little bit later. They did know exactly who they were dealing with and how they were connected uh, with the Chinese. In fact, here's the audio. Um, He said last night that they were proud of their relationship with the Chinese. It also sounds like Joe Biden was vetting you to some extent. Yes, of course. Like, um, I didn't request to meet with Joe. They requested that I meet with Joe. And, uh, you know, he's putting his, um, and Hunter says this in writing, it was uh, referenced multiple times, uh, they were putting their entire family legacy on the line. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were dealing with a Chinese-owned, you know, uh, enterprise uh, run by Chairman Yi, CFC, that had strong financial support and political support from the Chinese Communist Party. That's how it was presented to me. That's not my own words. That's how they presented it to me and read me in on it. And uh, my- they, they being Gillier and Hunter they Biden. They being Hunter Biden, who was very proud of that and taking credit for it when I sat with him for two hours on the patio of the Chateau Marmont in LA. Proud that they were doing a deal with the Chinese Communist Party? Well, proud that they were, that he had the relationship with Chairman Yi, who was running uh, CFC, and the ability for them to get deals done around the world and stuff like that. CFC is the Chinese energy company that they were involved in. And he also said, as I watched it last night, I was I was struck by how credible this guy looks and feels. His answers didn't seem rehearsed. Uh, it just seemed real. And he talked about a meeting with Joe Biden that he was brought in um, and, uh, you know, 10 o'clock at night in some hotel uh, they had this meeting where he talked about all of the business deals. Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest thing about, you know, back to your previous question on why he's coming out now, I, I, I think it, it looks exactly they, they knew who they were dealing with. I, I think that now he's just sick and tired of not being able to uh, of everybody else going down and not him or, or not the Bidens. All of his friends, all of his business partners, that they've to some extent been convicted in U.S. federal court on dealing with some of these crazy things involving like money money laundering. Um, in, in one case, Devin Archer was actually convicted. And this is interesting because there was another report that said that uh, or some audio that Hunter Biden talks about, about be- him and Joe Biden being named as witnesses in a U.S. Uh, court case. The only other court case I can think of was the one where uh, John Galanis, Devin Archer, and Bevan Cooney were all convicted for defrauding $60 million from a Native American tribe. Mm-hmm. Now, is that what he was referring to? It's possible. But, I mean, oh my gosh, just the optics of that right there that the media refuses to even report on. This is the best of the Glenn Beck Program. Blaze TV reporter Elijah Schaefer attacked Tuesday night inside a Philadelphia store while filming ongoing looting in the wake of the police shooting of Walter Wallace, who was killed after alleging char- after allegedly. No, it's not allegedly. It's on videotape charging the police with a knife. You can hear them saying, drop, the drop knife. the knife, drop the, drop knife. the knife. It's not it's, I, it's not entirely clear to me at least the first time i saw it where where his knife where the knife is but it does no no one's denying there was a knife used daily caller reported shelby talcott was also reporting from philadelphia she tweeted mass looting across the river and elijah schaefer just got beaten up for filming this is inside the five below store 
Uh, police are in the same parking lot near the Walmart, but there seem to be too many looters for them to do anything about it. Uh, let me play the video of him being attacked last night. Here it is. Look at the looting. Look at that. They surrounded him. Now the the camera person got out. Um, Elijah, you were surrounded by 10, 15 people. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, it escalated from one person to uh, about a dozen very, very quickly. Um, you were obviously punched in the mouth. We can see the um, effect of that. Your sleet, your speech is a little uh, weird, as usual, uh, or weirder than usual. Uh, <laughs> and sorry to make you laugh and smile. Um, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, you know. I'll tell you this, I'm actually really happy to be alive because in that same shopping center, um, right there, there was a 15 year old girl who was shot, um, mm. according to reports. And I heard multiple gunshots uh, throughout the night. Another individual is reported to have uh, been shot as well, still trying to confirm. I watched people get get pummeled uh, beyond belief. And even another journalist named James Klug, uh, he had to run almost a mile to get away from riders who tried to beat him up because, uh, and I will say this indiscriminately, they were specifically targeting white people uh, last night, and that was who they were after. Why and do you? So, why do you say? Why do you say that? Uh, because they were only attacking white journalists uh, specifically, and they told me they called me a white supremacist uh, during my attack, and after the fact. They came up to me at another location and told me a white supremacist and started accusing me of things that clearly have no base. Uh, and James had a similar uh, a, a similar interaction. And I'll say this: I was standing next to three different reporters who were also filming, uh, who are all Hispanic, and they decided to only target me and they let them continue filming. Um, so you know the racial slurs and accusations based with the fact that they only went after the two white journalists. Uh, in the group lead me to that conclusion and is this why uh, and i don't want any details on anybody who is working with you but is this why the camera was not taken because they punched you and the camera was rolling and got out yeah well that was actually a reporter shelby telcott who was completely uh, covered up because uh okay. the lawyers guild the lawyers guild was looking for her at the other protests trying to id her uh it's a group that touts themselves as a uh, legal group, but they really try to dox journalists and get people attacked. So she had completely covered up. So tell me um, your reaction to the New York Times saying that you are you're going in the New York Times, they said, are covering it. We're just covering it from a distance and uh, we can see everything that's going on. These guys are just trying to uh, make this bigger than it is and trying to uh, ratchet up the violence. That's what the New York Times said about your beating. Glenn, I, I'll, I'm going to tell you this, and this is what I, it's like what we're reporting at night. It's so funny to hear people that aren't there try to counter it. And then reports come out later that we were right. You know, I said that the police lost control of the city and I got mocked as well by these same journalists. Oh, you're exaggerating. How do you mean they lost control? Well, then the actual police chief says the night was a total loss and they were unable to get control of the of the city stretching several, several large blocks. This is like a, a mile, a square mile or so area 
there was just no ability for police to do anything uh, with a, more than a thousand rioters in just one location. I mean, I would say there would be anywhere maybe two to three thousand rioters last night in just a, a square mile or so. The police were not prepared, and at one point they just gave up. And that's they literally just gave up and just kind of left. Uh, you were in the Walmart. That's where you were, or were you in the Five Below uh, store when you were beat up? I was in the Five Below, and I want to note, not to make fun of anyone's position or to take it lightly, but why would you loot a store that's known for $5 and under <laughs> items? Uh, that's not <laughs> that where I would sense. loot. Right, right. Oh, well, um, but the Walmart you, you showed was looted, and police have ki- had kind of, which was, r- what, right across the street? And they weren't doing anything for the five below. And I got the impression that they had kind of given up on Walmart as well. Yeah. So this is what's so crazy. So the the videos that your your viewers would be seeing or or if they're listening, uh, the Walmart was looted in rounds. So people broke in, police came, cleared out the Walmart, and then they would run from the Walmart to the next store right next to the police, start looting that store. Then the police would leave the Walmart, run over to the next door to clear them out, and then everyone would run back into the Walmart. So it was like, it was just like, I, I never, I'm laughing because I'm going, this is what happened. And the police just pushed people. Essentially, the police kept pushing people till I counted over 30 stores that were looted. Uh, to That's even a conservative estimate. I mean, they went after a Chick-fil-A. Why? Well, racism, of course. Um <laughs> Uh, Elijah, uh, were you wearing all of the equipment that I got for you last night? Um, well, this was a time where we couldn't wear plate carriers, but I did have protection uh, to an extent. And I also was, uh, I was, you know, carrying sufficient means to protect myself in a legal matter. Um, but I'll tell you this, there is no law and order in these places and while I, I, I do respect law enforcement officers who protect and serve the people, these big cities have a real problem when the police of the cities cannot help people. And I will tell you this, we needed the National Guard there, and they were nowhere to be seen, and that was confirmed by multiple other outlets, including the Daily Caller, including Town Hall. Elijah, please, you and your crew stay safe. Thank you so much. Thank you, Glenn. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Dr. Pippa Malmgren, uh, she's an economist. Uh, She was an economic advisor to uh, George W. Bush, the author of The Infinite Leader. We want to talk to her about the economy and the digital civil war that is coming. Uh, doctor, how are you? Hello. I'm very well. I'm very excited to be on the program with you. Good. Thank you. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, first of all, the economy. As we look at the economy, um, what what's going to happen with a, a Biden Green New Deal uh, kind of radical agenda if they start to pack the courts? Mm, well, look, I, I actually have a more optimistic view that as soon as we know the result one way or the other, a lot of people are going to say, okay, fine, now I'm going back to work. Then there's a second question of what does it mean if 
if Biden becomes president. And I think it's going to take the Democrats a couple of years to have an internal punch up about where exactly is the policy supposed to be. It's not like when Clinton came in and it was a kind of center middle pro business position. Now we have a kind of far left all the way to the middle of the road and no agreement amongst all those folks as to what should we actually do. So it's an unknown is the answer. We know it will be obviously not what most Republicans would want, but I'm just saying we don't know how far to the left it might be. So we are um, at a time now where uh, the uh, information that people get is edited and shaped and put in front of them and they can be manipulated without even knowing it. Um, but we we also know that Twitter and Facebook have been uh, editing the news. What's really terrifying that nobody really understands is I have a digital twin and you have a digital twin. Tell me what that means to the average person. Yeah, so basically all of the data that you give off every day from not just searching on a search engine, but frankly, if you have a phone in your pocket and you walk down the street, the phone can tell what the condition of your heart is from the way you walk. In other words, all these electronic devices are picking up information about us. It's very, very deep. And all this data is kind of accumulating in like a twin of yourself that you can't see, but others can see it. So for example, banks increasingly, if you're applying for a job, they'll look at your digital twin and make decisions about you based on that. So if you order Ben and Jerry's ice cream at midnight on the Thursday night while Googling Weight Watchers, that algorithm is going to say this person is a little emotionally unstable. And that's going to show up in the personnel search. And maybe that's the reason you don't get a phone call back. Or even worse, they'll start to look at, the, uh, at a married couple and compare the purchasing patterns and the behavior patterns of both, and they can anticipate a divorce that the couple themselves don't even know is coming and often drive down the credit limit of the lower-earning partner in anticipation of that divorce. So that's what I mean by your digital signature or your digital twin is starting to have a huge impact on your actual life. So they actually... Uh, take your data and will say this is an unstable person? It, I mean, it, your oh, example was... Sure. But with an example like that? Yeah, I've talked to banks around the world and this is becoming ever more commonplace. So think of it this way. Um, it's a question of the algorithms read through all the data and they start to find patterns. And one of the patterns might be that if you have a married couple and the two of them are spending in very different ways in different locations, that this is just an early indicator that there is a breakdown in the marriage. Now, all this data is typically auctioned off on the Internet, right? That's the whole point of doing your searches through, say, Google. Google takes the data and they auction it off around the net. And theory, it's what they call anonymized, meaning it's anonymous. It's not you. But I have to say, I have my doubts that data is really, truly anonymous. It's becoming easier and easier to identify from your zip code and from your daily activities, kind of exactly who and where you are. So it's becoming a tracking mechanism. Are we any different than the Chinese other than the government is using this data? Are we any different? Do they have more information on their people 
than we have on ours? It's, I think this is the key question of our generation. When we talk about surveillance capitalism, which is kind of the broad name for what we're talking about here. And the thing is, in China, the government does it. In the U.S., we've privatized it. So we have private entities that are gathering the data. Um, but what we don't have is an Internet that keeps all this kind of data either fully private and in your control or or even better, permits you to monetize and make money off it as opposed to others. Right. And there are a few people working on that, like Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who was the original inventor of the Internet, and mm-hmm. a few other people. But it's kind of a hard technical task and one the public isn't really supporting yet because I don't think the general public understands their digital twin and, and what the implications are of it. So the, the one thing that really, really concerns me is, especially if the Democrats get in, they, they have this new, it's called the new monetary theory, which is not a new monetary theory. It's an old monetary theory that just says spend as much as you want uh, and we can always print more. Um, just with the spending habits that we have right now, uh, we're, we're headed for real trouble and real trouble with the dollar. You say that the government is going to issue, I'm, I'm assuming at some point, um, cryptocurrency itself. So not jumping on the Bitcoin bandwagon, but issuing its own cryptocurrency. And why is that a problem? I think that's right. People thought crypto was just private entities, but now Russia, China, uh, the European Union have all said they're going to issue sovereign digital currency. And one way of thinking about this is that it's a little bit like heroin for politicians in the sense that you can double the money supply with the keystroke. Uh, You can also cut it in half with a keystroke because it's not related to some underlying phenomena like gold in the old days. It's just purely electronic and digital. And even more interesting, when you have digital currency, you can choose whose bank account it goes into or comes out of. Mm. So the Chinese, for example, have been already giving away the new digital currency um, and testing, you know, basically people start to use it and then directing it to some, not others. You could easily imagine a politician saying, I would like to give a tax break or send free money to a certain group of voters, but not others. And the criteria will be fill in the blank. And now you're able to create a kind of financial mechanism for encouraging or discouraging particular voting patterns, as an example. It, it allows you to stop any kind of behavior that you don't like. It's, it's really, I mean, the digital twin would be a social score. And the government can shut anyone it wants off uh, and reward anyone it wants. So you're right to use this term score. And that's exactly what's happening is we're being scored all the time because of this digitization of, of everything. But when you add digital money into it, it's not just a score. It's also a kind of way to keep track of who's doing what in the economy, where, when, with whom, how. And if you decided you didn't like certain kinds of economic activities, you could penalize them a lot more easily with a digital currency as a sovereign nation than with traditional paper money. And I do think we're on the edge of a huge transition from paper money into digital money and this will also change the balance of power between states and citizens 
and also between companies and customers. So there are lots of political consequences of this technology change. How long do you think we are away from that? Well, I'm literally looking at the net as I'm talking to you, and there's a story that says McDonald's, Starbucks, and Subway denied testing China's new digital currency, which means most probably companies like this are beginning to test it because China's giving it away. Russia has announced their plan to test and, and unveil digital currency. The EU has said they're absolutely on track. In the U.S., there's been a bit slower, but again, private. J.P. Morgan is introducing a digital currency, the JPM coin. That's already ready for commercial use. And I suspect the U.S. government's going to let the private companies test it out before they dive in. So then what happens to Bitcoin? Well, I think people thought that by having Bitcoin, you could somehow escape uh, the government and um, government surveillance, maybe the taxation system. And I think that's not correct, because in the end, even if you, you wanted to do all that, you have to actually log in to your Bitcoin account. That means you need a keyboard of some kind. Mm-hmm. And the world we're describing here is it's so easy to digitally track what, is, what are you typing into your keyboard. I mean, it's going to reach a point where the only person who won't know your password is you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, once you're in digital space, there's no way to really hide. It's a very visible electronic grid that um, captures all the activity that's occurring inside it. So you can't really step outside that digital grid, and particularly not once money itself becomes part of the process. We are seeing now um, the the breakdown of our society in in certain cities and we're seeing riots and burning of cities etc etc i think both sides feel like they've been pushed to the absolute limit um you talk about a civil war but you say it's not going to be like it's ever been in any civil war before what do you mean by that well so look what I was talking about was less the sort of violence that we're witnessing and more a broader phenomena, which is a, which I've written about some years ago in a book I wrote called Signals. Um, it's about the breakdown of the social contract, the relationship between states and citizens, between companies and customers, among citizens. And I personally think that's because of the heavy debt load that most nations carry And that debt load kind of breaks the promises that hold a nation together. Like, you can retire at 65. Well, now, because of debt, we can't. And the fastest growing part of the workforce are people over the age of 55 because they can't, they don't have enough savings to make it to the end of their life. And so as we renegotiate the social contract, this reveals a lot of longstanding uh, unresolved issues. And by the way, COVID exacerbates that because COVID also reveals the pre-existing underlying conditions initially in a person, but also in companies, in a society, in politics. And one of the pre-existing underlying conditions that has revealed is this issue between African-Americans and the rest of society and a kind of unresolved sense of what is the right social contract that is inclusive of everybody's needs in a in a way that everyone is comfortable with and can and can benefit from. And so some people are taking to violence to deal with that. Others are using technology to overcome that. 
Um, and so, you know, this is where we are. We are renegotiating the social contract right now. One last uh, question. I know you're an optimist long term. What, yeah. what, what, how do you think 2021 is going to look? A lot like 2020 or worse or better? You know, okay, I'm going to give you a really optimistic view because, you know, nobody else is going to give you it. Right. <laughs> so my feeling is, look, we've got a wave of entrepreneurial energy being unleashed as people get fired, companies are closed, restaurants go out of business. And I don't believe most people lie down, roll over and say, there's nothing I can do. Most people go, you know what? I have an idea. And they will try to build something new. And two-thirds of the net new jobs are always created by companies that employ mm-hmm. less than 50 people. So we're going to have a wave of entrepreneurial energy. Not all of it will work, but it's going to be very exciting. And then add to that, we have this record amount of money that's been injected into the economy from government, which I'm not in favor of, but the fact is, there it is. It's in the system. And usually, that money will find the good business models. And then add to that this technological revolution we're going through, digitization, the efficiency gains are massive. And so I actually think the recovery may happen much faster and more sharply than people expect, because right now they're building in the Great Depression Mark II, and I'm not at all convinced that that's how it's really going to play. I I think the recovery may be much faster. I, from your lips to God's ear, thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You bet. Dr. uh, uh, Pippa Malgrim, uh, she is an economist, former economic advisor to George W. Bush, uh, and uh, the author of the book, The Infinite Leader. 